This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Russian Revolution, A View from the Third World by Walter Rodney, edited by Jesse Benjamin and Robin D.G. Kelly, with a foreword by Vijay Prashad. In his short life, Guyanese intellectual Walter Rodney emerged as one of the foremost thinkers and activists of the anti-colonial revolution, leading movements in North America, Africa, and the Caribbean. Wherever he was, Rodney was a lightning rod for working-class black power organizing. His deportation sparked Jamaica's Rodney riots in 1968, and his scholarship trained a generation in how to approach politics on an international scale. In 1980, Shortly after founding the Working People's Alliance in Guyana, the 38-year-old Rodney was assassinated. Walter Rodney's Russian Revolution collects surviving texts from a series of lectures he delivered at the University of Dar es Salaam, an intellectual hub of the independent third world. It had been his intention to work these into a book, a goal completed posthumously with the editorial aid of Robin D.G. Kelly and Jesse Benjamin. Moving across the historiography of the long Russian Revolution with clarity and insight, Rodney transcends the ideological fault lines of the Cold War. Surveying a broad range of subjects, the Narodniks, social democracy, the October Revolution, civil war, and the challenges of Stalinism, Rodney articulates a distinct viewpoint from the Third World, one that grounds revolutionary theory and history with the people in motion. The Russian Revolution a View from the Third World by Walter Rodney, edited by Jesse Benjamin and Robin D.G. Kelly, with a foreword from Vijay Prashad, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This, dear listeners, is a serious theory show, and I'm very pleased that my guest today is legendary critical theorist Nancy Fraser. Fraser is well known for her feminist and Marxist theories of justice and social reproduction. Social reproduction is the everything that takes place in homes, neighborhoods, schools, hospitals, and more that capitalism requires to ensure that laborers can wake up in the morning and walk into work to be exploited on the job. Her latest book, Capitalism, A Conversation in Critical Theory, is a dialogue with Rahel Yegi that advances a total critique of capitalism as a comprehensive order and extends her analysis of social reproduction to capitalism's other critical underpinnings. Fraser argues that a total analysis of capitalism requires taking Marxism beyond a narrowly economistic view. Indeed, the economistic insistence on sharp divisions, such as those drawn between the economic and political and environmental, between the workplace and the home, or between liberal free labor regimes in wealthy countries and raw expropriation on the neo-colonial periphery, are themselves key to the legitimation and reproduction of the capitalist order. Throughout its history, capitalism has been defined not just by labor exploitation, but also by the disavowal of its own basic conditions of possibility, 
the things that the daily business of labor exploitation and surplus value appropriation require from politics, care work, war making, mining, patriarchy, racism, and more. The fact that these other forms of domination are simultaneously critical to capitalism, but also externalized as incidental under capitalism, leads capitalism to threaten its own viability. And that means that those seemingly non-economic spheres become points of contradiction and potentially crisis. In other words, the very drive to accumulate capital identified by Marx constantly threatens these obscured but absolutely necessary inputs, whether they be oil or childbearing, by failing to pay their full cost, or even by denying that the debts should be billed to capitalists in the first place. We see the results today with two earner households struggling to tend to their children, a long multifaceted war that has discredited the post-war geopolitical order, a legitimacy crisis for a system of mass incarceration that functions to discipline and control the surplus from the domestic labor market's racialized lowest rungs, expensive real estate threatened by rising seas, and immigration flows produced by a system that simultaneously requires third-world workers to remain poor in the periphery while also requiring them to perform low-wage labor in the core. The class struggle, if we look carefully, is everywhere. And so our ambition can't be a simple return to the New Deal era's family wage secured by a well-compensated working man, because that in turn relied upon a subservient housewife at home, unsustainable natural resource exploitation, and rampantly extractive imperialism across the third world. Racism, sexism, and an imperialist global geopolity are not incidental to capitalism, but are rather tethered systematically to its very center. Capitalists will find provisional solutions for mounting objective crises, crises that are increasingly becoming subjective ones as well, as people struggle tilting toward both the anti-system left and right to make sense of a system that no longer does. The Clintonian Center will attempt to revivify its corpse, having no other options at its disposal save for a politics that once worked but no longer do. Business will promote techno-fever dreams of human liberation from labor and nature as a cover for the most brutal forms of domination and expropriation. The robots might be coming for your jobs, but right now, they are here, and they are making your jobs a nightmare. Capitalism can't liberate itself from its own conditions of possibility, but it can work out new, immiserating, and destructive fixes. It's up to socialists to provide an alternative. Before we get started with attempting to comprehensively examine capitalism in just over an hour, please... If you listen to this show, make a monthly contribution to keep us funded over the long haul at patreon.com slash the dig. We have a newsletter for donations of $5 or more. If you donate $10 a month, I'll send you either Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism or Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity. Donations of $20 or more gets you a bunch of left-wing titles mailed to your door. Okay. Here's Nancy Fraser, a professor of philosophy and politics at the New School for Social Research, and most recently, the author of Capitalism, A Conversation in Critical Theory, co-authored with Rahel Yegi. 
Nancy Frazier, welcome to The Dig. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Your Marxism is a refreshingly comprehensive one. You argue, if I can take a stab at summarizing your argument, that the exploitation of labor in the realm of production, which is what's most familiar to many Marxists, critically depends upon three key things that are shunted off into the background. First, social reproduction, which most notably, but by no means exclusively, includes home lives where humans eat, sleep, socialize, where children are reared. Second, politics, which includes everything from the market-creating and defending activities of government to the carceral state. And then non-human nature, which is both this critical source of raw materials for capitalists, but also a dumpster for their waste. And some orthodox variants of Marxism don't pay much attention to these things. In part, it seems to me ironically, because capitalism mystifies and denies the fact that it depends upon these these spheres. Explain this big picture of capitalism you are arguing for, something that is in your analysis, far more than a merely economic system. You're right. Um, There is a tendency to think of capitalism as an economic system. And then we think that if we're uh, engaged, uh, say, on the left in trying to criticize capitalism, we're criticizing how production is organized, how wealth is distributed, uh, how class power in the workplace is wielded, and so on. Now, all of those things are extremely important, but they're not the whole story because the official economy within a capitalist society depends on a background of social relations, social practices, institutions that are regarded as non-economic. In fact, I would say that um, one thing that is really definitive of capitalist societies, which distinguishes those societies from others, is precisely the centrality of this distinction between what is truly economic and what is non-economic. That's not a distinction that's somehow given by nature. It is a socially constructed distinction and one that is institutionalized with real material and political force in capitalist societies. So all the work, as as you mentioned, of birthing and raising children, of schooling them, of feeding them, of cleaning them, of socializing them, all the work of caring for other family members, uh, whether we're talking about healthy and able working adults or Uh, aging or invalid uh, parents and others, all of that is considered non-economic and outside of the capitalist economy unless we get to a point, which we've arrived at at least to some degree today, where that work is commodified and becomes wage work. But in and of itself, it's always taken to back seat and as you say, shoved into the background. And when we think we're talking about and criticizing capitalism, we're ignoring all that. We're also ignoring 
all of these questions about how public power, the power of states, of global financial and political institutions, of police, how all of that power is organized and is also a necessary precondition for the functioning of a capitalist economy in the narrow sense. And the third thing you mentioned, uh, non-human nature, um, the, the, uh, seen from the capitalist economic point of view as a repository of raw material, stuff that we can just take, funnel into production, use up, exhaust, not worry about replenishing as if it's just an infinitely available gift. Uh, and then, as you say, uh, use it uh, to, to be used also as a dumpster, as just a, a place to dump uh, waste, which of which we generate uh, an enormous amount. So if you take what I call an expanded view of what capitalism is, you come to the point where you say, we can't understand how even the narrow economy functions if we don't look at the ways in which it relies on and uh, depends upon inputs from the system of care or social reproduction, from the system of nature, uh, from the various political systems. Um, the economy doesn't work without those things. And um, my proposal is that instead of interpreting capitalism as an economic system, we should see it as the name for something much bigger. I call it an institutionalized social order. Uh, and just, I think, you know, you could get a sense of what I mean by that if you just contrast it to feudalism. Capitalism is something as big and on a par with feudalism. And in both cases, the question is, how are things that we might think of as economic functions organized in relation to other functions equally necessary to society and to the economic that are split off, hived off, called something else, located in different institutions, assigned to different people, compensated differently, if, if at all, and uh, in, in a way that um, is shot through and through with asymmetrical power relations, with relations of domination. I mean, what, just to, to finish this maybe an overly long answer, I would say that the one advantage of taking this expanded view of capitalism is that you get to see how... Um, entrenched relations of domination other than the ones that Marxists have traditionally focused on, namely class, understood in a, let's say, an economistic way, are also inseparable from and structurally grounded in capitalist societies. And that includes relations of gender dominance and subordination. That obviously has everything to do with the division between uh, economic production on the one side and social reproduction on the other. Uh, we could say a little bit more about how uh, race and imperial domination uh, fit into this picture, but that too is equally structural and obviously ecological uh, depredation and uh, destruction is built into this picture. So we've got a broader array of uh, axes of domination 
and if we, I, we, I could go on and say also a broader array of, of flashpoints of trouble and nodes of crisis. Uh, there's much more going on in capitalist society than the traditional economistic picture suggests. There's a lot there, obviously, and a lot in your book. And I want to start with social reproduction, which has been the focus of the work for a lot of your career. And I want you to explain a little bit more about what that is and how it differs from forms of patriarchy that have existed outside of capitalism. And then concretely, I'd like you to explain what the crisis or maybe better put crises of social reproduction look like in the United States today. Because one core contradiction or crisis tendency in capitalism that you touched on uh, briefly in your first comment there is that the drive to accumulate more capital means that all of these prerequisites that capitalism depends upon but denies are always threatened with commodification and destruction. So um, I'd like you to lay out these current crises in social reproduction and why it is that capitalism is driven to undermine its very conditions of existence. Sure. Um, absolutely. It's a, it's a complicated question, but I think an extremely important one that um, provides us, if we can get a proper handle on it, with uh, a lot of insight into what's going on today politically in the United States. Uh, but let me start with the general um, issue of what is social reproduction. At one level, social reproduction just means all of the activities and energies and social relations that go into producing, socializing, reproducing human beings and um, the social bonds, the uh, everything that sort of connects uh, people to one another in social life. And social reproduction in this very general sense exists in every society, you know, in, in every form of, uh, of pre-capitalist societies and socialist societies and so on. Now, what is specific, though, is how social reproduction is organized in capitalist societies. And as I said just before, um, the most important sort of starting point here is this idea that we separate it from what we call economic production. In one case, people quote unquote go out to work, to an office, to a factory, to a mine, to a field. In another case, they stay at home. So it's we already have this huge division between the household and the workplace, between the family and the factory. And this division correlates uh, historically with gender, with the sphere of women and the sphere of men. It's this split uh, uh, between uh, production and reproduction that is distinctive, or it's one of the splits that's distinctive about capitalist society. In previous societies, women's work was often distinguished from men's work. They didn't do exactly the same things. But they did it more or less in the same space of the extended household or the village or community. And there was no sense that um, women's work was somehow 
occluded, made invisible, seen as not contributing. But with the emergence of capitalism, and especially these various Victorian ideologies and and middle-class ideals of female domesticity, uh, then you sort of got the idea that that women weren't really even working at all. They were just um, adorning or diffusing fine moral sentiments uh, throughout society. Um, This is all a huge mystification. Some Marxist feminists, just to clarify, some Marxist feminists have thought of social reproductive labor exclusively as housework. I think that's too narrow. It's not just about uh, cleaning and, and cooking and washing within the confines of a private family home. Social reproduction should also be thought of as including schools and whatever public institutions that uh, create social bonds. Playgrounds, community centers, block parties. Playgrounds, community centers. Um, Hospitals and uh, medical uh, clinics are also sites of social reproduction. In any case, it's a vast expanse of social activity. But for the most part, and this is another distinctive feature of capitalism, unless it's brought inside the economy and treated as a way to make a profit, it's not counted as having any value. And most of social reproduction, all of these things I've talked about, is still outside the formal economy. It's seen as not having a value. So, I mean, that's the other thing about what capitalism values. Since the whole raison d'etre of the system is precisely to accumulate profits and thereby to expand capital, um, that's the sole measure of value. And this brings me to the point you were just asking about having to do really with with crisis tendencies. You can see that um, there's there's a built-in hardwired imperative to maximize your profit and increase your capital if you if you have any, and um, that means trying to find and and touch on inputs that you can use in the process of capital accumulation, for which you don't pay at all or you pay at under the cost of their replacement. Capital is structurally primed to try to avoid paying the replacement costs of the inputs that it utilizes in the process of production, including immaterial production. Uh, So um, that means not paying the full ecological replacement costs of raw materials or of the damage that's done through waste dumping, including uh, uh, carbon emissions. It also means uh, not paying the full replacement costs of the work of social reproduction. So we know that that housework has uh, overwhelmingly um, been uh, unpaid or uh, very poorly paid and underpaid, paid less than the cost of reproducing the woman who performs it. So that, that 
that difference between what capital gets out of that work, even indirectly, and what is paid for it is is a nice little windfall, a, a, a freebie that right makes capitalist production more profitable. So, so all I'm I'm just trying to sort of describe a logic that is built into a system that works this way, where you're always trying to pay as little as possible. So over time, what can happen is that there is a system-wide failure to invest in social reproduction. Capital doesn't want to pay. It doesn't want to pay its workers enough to allow them to pay a decent wage for personal housework, for example, or child care. Corporations don't want to pay the taxes, generous enough taxes, to fund generous, high-quality public services, such as uh, childcare or uh, education and so on. Um, So there's a constant chiseling away at this, and it can go so far under certain conditions that you actually endanger society's capacity to reproduce itself in this human social sense. This is a case of of just eating into the bone of something. And we know from, let's say, Engel's great work on the condition of the working class in England, how this looked in the 19th century in an early phase of capitalism, where the new industries were just basically dragooning women and children into factories and mines, along with men. In fact, they loved child labor and women's labor because they thought they could pay less, and they thought that these would be docile workers who wouldn't uh, make trouble. Um, In any case, you got, in in this situation, a a real uh, crisis of social reproduction, where um, the working class was uh, really not re- able to produce, it reproduce itself, to turn out um, laborers with the health and the skills and uh, the, just the, the, the human capacities uh, that were needed. And um, it provoked uh, a, an enormous amount of political conflict and struggle and organizing uh, aimed at first at passing, you know, protective legislation and other and laws limiting uh, hours and minimum wage laws and health and safety uh, laws and so on and so forth. All of that was a, a, an attempt to try to um, draw some boundaries and uh, right uh, bolster the processes of social reproduction, which capital left to itself was depleting and destroying those that 19th century sort of and this is a core crisis tendency that you identify that as as boundary struggles yes um i coined uh this phrase boundary struggles to um to try to give a name to um a a kind of struggle that is built into capitalist society precisely around these institutionalized divisions, division between production and reproduction, between the economy and the political system, 
between nature and or non-human nature and uh, human uh, society, which is supposed to not be natural. The point is, these are these are divisions that are definitive and constitutive of capitalist society. They are structural, and um, they are also points, locations in society where conflict congregates. Where should we draw the line between production and reproduction? These struggles that I just mentioned over protective legislation in the 19th and 20th century were struggles over just that question. And they were at the same time struggles over what's the boundary between the state and the market. Should the state step in and say, no, you have to have minimum wage, you have to have uh, you know, a, a health and, and, and safety uh, regime, you have to have accident insurance, you have to have, um, you know, uh, limit hours, and so on and so forth. Th- these are very familiar kinds of conflicts, but I think it, it clarifies to think of them as boundary struggles, struggles over where to draw the line between reproduction and production, polity, economy, nature, society. And, um, this is, you know, I think that 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 the usual Marxian story about class struggle, while very powerful and absolutely pertinent uh, to our time as well, um, it could, it, it, you know, it it doesn't uh, fully account for struggles outside the workplace proper which could also be thought of class struggles if we had a wider sense of what we meant by class, but that are in any case boundary struggles. But if we go back to the question of social reproduction today, what's uh, very important is that you know we've transitioned within the last, say, 50 years to a new form of capitalism. Well, I guess if it's 50 years, it's maybe not so new anymore, but... Um, it's been called neoliberalism. I prefer to call it financialized capitalism. Whatever we call it, it's very different from the previous regime of capitalism, which uh, flourished, uh, let's say, at least in the U.S. from the New Deal and um, elsewhere, um, at least in the aftermath of the Second World War. I call that state-managed capitalism. You could call it social democratic capitalism. Some people used to call it monopoly capitalism, many names. But the key idea of, of that, let's say, New Deal or state-managed capitalism was that the state weighed in in support of social reproduction. It said, okay, we're not going to let uh, the pursuit of profit run entirely roughshod over people's ability to have a life and and even to generate uh, new uh, workers that uh, capital wants down the line. Uh, we're going to um, throw some uh, ballast on the scale, some weight on the scale. We're going to uh, tax capital. We're going to pay for uh, schooling, and uh, we're going to insist that wage levels be at a certain level uh, uh, to allow for a home life and so on. I, I want to be clear that um, I am the last person to say that this New Deal or state-managed 
uh, regime was a golden age of any kind. Um, it was premised on um, a lot of built-in uh, domination. It was premised on women's subordination through the idea of the family wage, the idea that a, a working man should be paid a salary sufficient to support his non-employed wife and children so that a family should need only one salary, one worker. That's uh, uh, at one level, um, seems like a luxury to us today. Uh, but at another level, it was uh, premised on a, a kind of uh, male-dominated household model in, in, in which women were dependent on men. Um, it was also uh, premised on, um, now we do get to the more traditional sense of imperialism, on the ability of the wealthy states of the capitalist core to siphon value from what was then called the third world, what we today call the global south, I want to ask you about the interstate system and, and imperialism, because it, that's one of a few different divisions that, if I read you right, are subsets of, though by no means secondary to, the three key divisions that you identify between production and reproduction, economy and polity, and human and non-human nature. And one of these, these key divisions that is a subset but not secondary is those between domestic and international and core and periphery. And those two divisions are also key because they're reproduced inside the United States and other global North nation states by way of racism and also the racialized legal caste system or segmented labor market of illegalized immigrant labor. Can you explain, you identify race and racism and I think also an unequal predatory interstate system as core features of capitalism. How how do they then relate to the, the three major distinctions you you articulate? I, I um I, you know, I said earlier that um, gender dominance and subordination is hardwired into capitalism as we've known it. And I would say the same is true uh, for racial ethnic dominance and subordination. Uh, racial oppression is not uh, contingently or accidentally related to capitalism, but is structurally inscribed in it. And um, the reason, uh, as I understand it, it has to do with the logic I was describing a minute ago. And that is, um, uh, capital has a stake always in uh, expropriating labor forces and raw materials and other assets uh, for which it doesn't fully pay. So you have on the one hand, um, capitalism developed in a dualized way historically. On the one hand, you have the iconic working men whom we think of who go to the factory and, and, and get a wage equal to the cost of the, their social reproduction and so on. On the other hand, you have a actually a much larger population, a much larger story of people who are not in wage labor in anything remotely like that, but whose assets are simply being seized in one way or another by uh, capital, by uh, Im imperial and colonial states, uh, or even by their own states in our time. 
And this is accumulation by dispossession, which is sort of the, yes. the continuous, persistent version of, of primitive accumulation, which is more of the historically specific yes. version of it. Exactly. Uh, this uh, phrase, accumulation by dispossession, is David Harvey's phrase, and it's a good one. Uh, I've preferred, though, to speak about um, expropriation uh, versus exploitation. Let me quote a phrase that I love from Jason Moore, the um, eco-Marxist critic. He writes, behind Manchester stands Mississippi. So that's a beautiful phrase. It's so succinct. It's uh, what it means is that you don't have the ability to profitably exploit uh, factory labor in the great textile mills of Manchester uh, without the uh, raw material of cotton produced by slaves in Mississippi. Uh, That cheapens the crucial input, the raw material for the textile production. It also helps to have slave-produced sugar and tobacco and rum and uh, other um, commodities that allow you to pay lower wages because you have cheap uh, consumer goods, so to speak. Um, So the point is, exploitation and expropriation have always been intertwined in the history of capitalism. They still are today. Um, But roughly... And overall, that distinction has corresponded to what Du Bois famously called the color line. It has been overwhelmingly people of color who found themselves on the expropriation side of the boundary and uh, people who were called whites or Europeans or or, uh, metropolitans who found themselves on the exploitation side. Exploitation was no picnic but uh, it's still a more privileged position uh, than that of expropriation. And I think that um, that division is the sort of um, fundamental structural basis of racial oppression in capitalist society. It's not just an economic distinction. It's not that one gets paid and the other not. One, it's also that one is free and the other is dependent or enslaved, subjugated, uh, whether as a colonial subject or a piece of uh, chattel uh, property. Um, to, to be, you know, Marx insists that uh, wage labor, uh, the, the workers are free to, to sign a labor contract. They have a certain level of rights, even if uh, They don't have the material uh, means to exercise these in a fully free way. Um, The the expropriated subjects, and this is the very meaning of expropriation, they don't have rights. They don't have protections. Their persons, property, lands, animals, children can simply be seized, and there's nobody, no power they can call upon to uh, protect them, to draw the line. So to be expropriable means to be inherently subject to violation. Uh, And that's another important meaning of racialization. Your analysis on this uh, reminded me of an insight from Barbara Fields, which is 
how racism is a result of the contradictions between, I guess, what you would describe as the political and economic spheres of liberal capitalism. You have liberal democracy proclaiming liberty and, and some sort of equality for all, but you have this economy that's obviously brutally unequal, most extremely so with the expropriated labor of African slaves. And then so racism is a sort of provisional solution to this contradiction. There is a contradiction, I would say, in that um, unlike uh, feudalism and uh, other forms of ancient slave societies, say, um, capitalism really depends on the idea that the official working class, those who are recognized as workers, are free individuals. They, in in time, acquire uh, citizenship rights. They they get the vote. Uh, I mean, they have to struggle for it, but they get the vote and they, they get civil rights and other rights. Um, on the other hand, capitalism doesn't work without this substratum, without this, this background, this hidden abode. Uh, um, that it's the sort of analog, in a way, of the housewife. Um, you know, the in a sense, you could say her labor is, uh, if not expropriated, at least appropriated by capital. Um, and uh, on the other hand, uh, you have these vast um, swaths of humanity uh, throughout the world, as you say, overseas, in in colonies and post colonies but also the so-called uh, colony um, within the core, the periphery within the core. You know, there was used to be a whole theory about the, uh, the black colony uh, within the U.S. Uh, in African-American um, uh, liberation thought. So um, th th that negates, I mean, it, I would say that the freedom of the worker which is, of course, the freedom to be exploited. Let's not overstate it. But the freedom of the worker depends upon the subjection of the, 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 the quote-unquote non-worker, the racialized other. The, the, whatever benefits the exploited have are somehow off the backs of the expropriated. And, of course, the real benefits don't go to the exploited at all, but to capital. So I think that, that race is central, and whenever capitalism takes a form in which it requires—I would say it always requires both expropriation and exploitation, but whenever it takes the form of assigning those two, let's say, functions, if you like, to two different populations, the result is racialization. A particularly— interesting history you sketch out is that you touched on a few minutes ago is how different forms of expropriation by way of things like colonial plunder and slavery also relate to specific forms of environmental dispossession. You describe it, I think, as a relationship between free labor and expropriation on the one hand and fossil fuel energy versus human energy on the other. And I think this kind of like brings together two important aspects of your theory. Can you explain explain that dynamic and how that plays out, not just between nation states, but but within them as well? And that actually might get to your your expropriation point that you were just touching on. That's an, a very um, important question. I mean, um, the idea, uh, if we just start by thinking for a moment about energy and how 
uh, capitalist production, all production, relies on um, energy. Uh, then um, uh, I'm, I'm influenced by a really interesting essay that I read by, uh, um, um, I'm forgetting his initials, but his name is, is McNeil, uh, who distinguished between somatic and extrasomatic energy regimes. A somatic regime depends upon human and animal bodies uh, to convert, uh, let's say, solar energy, chemical energy into mechanical energy, and then to to use that uh, to labor. So um, it's 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 human muscle and oxen and horses and all of that. And um, for millennia, including in the early uh, stages of capitalism, that's what powered uh, production. Then you get this um, very important moment with the introduction, uh, with really the invention of, by Watt, of the steam engine, and the idea that you can actually convert chemical to mechanical energy outside of living bodies. You can do it in a machine, in an engine. And this is a total game changer because uh, it means that um, uh, you can... Well, the appearance is that you liberate yourself from the need for living bodies and from the need for more and more land to feed the living bodies, right? Uh, the, 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 you can liberate yourself from the need for uh, biomass, whereas before, if you wanted to scale up production, you had to conquer more bodies, you had to conquer more lands to feed them. Now, apparently, all you need to do is get a, a little bit of coal or, and, uh, you know, and a, a smaller number of workers, uh, put them inside a factory and um, crank up the steam engine. Well, um, what is clear to me is that um, there's, that's only the sort of front story, the tip of the iceberg. You could say that the harshest and most obvious fallout from... Uh, couple of centuries of uh, really uh, rampant carbon emissions, uh, you know, falls most obviously and harshly on peoples in the global south, and one should add communities of color within the global north who, who are subject to environmental uh, racism, toxic dumping, and so on and so forth. So this is all entwined, this, um, this ecological side of the story and the, the part of it that has to do with expropriation and imperialism, which, again, has to do, as you rightly pointed out, uh, with the way that capitalism divides e economy from polity. It sets up a world economic system uh, and then superimposes on that a multi-state political system uh, of vastly unequal states, it must be added. The front story of the future, I think, is Elon Musk, its self-driving cars, its high-frequency trading, its seamless and near-total automation, its technological fixes to the ecological crisis. What do you make of that, that front story, and what's the back story that it's dependent on but disavowing? Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of uh, like hyper uh, uh, fantasy of 
you know, freedom from materiality. This is the idea that we somehow catapult ourselves out of uh, embodiment, out of uh, our planetary material existence, um, and, you know, somehow give birth to ourselves as, as pure mind or symbolic beings or, or whatever and get everything uh, that we need or want in that way. But these fantasies of liberation from nature and from labor have always meant one thing. They have always meant offloading the burdens onto other bodies and other natures far away from which we, uh, from which we try to, you know, um, let's say, uh, cordon ourselves off in, in our gated worlds and so on. Um, it, 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 it makes no sense. It's only possible, like Manchester, because there's Mississippi somewhere else. And uh, that means uh, other people whose conditions of life, uh, life are, are being devastated. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon and by University of California Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Uberland, How Algorithms Are Rewriting the Rules of Work by Alex Rosenblatt. Silicon Valley technology is transforming the way we work, and Uber is leading the charge. An American startup that promised to deliver entrepreneurship for the masses through its technology, Uber instead built a new template for employment using algorithms and internet platforms. Upending our understanding of work in the digital age, Uberland paints a future where any of us might be managed by a faceless boss. The neutral language of technology masks the powerful influence algorithms have across the new economy. Uberland chronicles the stories of drivers in more than 25 cities in the United States and Canada over four years, shedding light on their working conditions and providing a window into how they feel behind the wheel. The book also explores Uber's outsized influence around the world. The billion-dollar company is now influencing everything from debates about sexual harassment and transportation regulations to racial equality campaigns and labor rights initiatives. Based on award-winning technology ethnographer Alex Rosenblatt's first-hand experience of riding over 5,000 miles with Uber drivers, daily visits to online forums, and face-to-face discussions with senior Uber employees, Uberland goes beyond the headlines to reveal the complicated politics of popular technologies that are manipulating both workers and consumers. Uberland, How Algorithms Are Rewriting the Rules of Work by Alex Rosenblatt. Out now from University of California Press. Another question about this division between politics and economics, which I think is also, as an aside, something that helps me understand how libertarians get away with cleansing the market of power relations of domination. But it it's a division like the others you outline, obviously, that mystifies these deep and mutually dependent relationships. And today that seems really clear on a lot of different fronts. You have the Tea Party and then Trump and the way that freedom of movement for capital has been met 
with this increasing nationalism, hardening of borders, xenophobia, obviously no 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 crisis predictably or automatically determines any particular political outcome. But on a theoretical level, I'd like you to explain the difference between objective and subjective crises and and more concretely to explain the current dynamic between economic and political crises that that we're witnessing with what seems to be a a, a legitimation crisis for for the system. Yeah, that's a, a very important point. I mean, a lot of um, uh, we've been talking so far um, without ma- really making a distinction between a kind of objective aspect of a crisis and a lived or social or subjective aspect of a crisis. But um, it, when when I when we when we were talking about this sort of uh, dynamic of um, whereby capital is always trying to confiscate uh, as much as it can in the way of free labor, free uh, nature, uh, free political uh, benefits um, without paying uh, their costs. That's an objective system, right, dynamic, and one that I was trying to suggest is without some kind of intervention left to its own devices, uh, one that will necessarily um, end up undermining, destabilizing, exhausting the very background conditions that the system needs. That would be an objective story about a crisis tendency. It's kind of parallel to what Marx uh, meant by the, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. That's an objective dynamic. On the other hand, when we talked about class struggles and boundary struggles and and all of that, we're talking about how people react to the um, the playing out of the objective tendencies, how they respond. Do they um, register that there's uh, something really negative going on or not? Do they actually think it's a crisis or not? And what what it what it means to think it's a crisis is to think. This is not accidental that these bad things are going on, but there's something about the system itself that is generating them and that this system could be changed and that we stand at a crossroads and might uh, be willing to undertake the responsibility to organize collectively to change them. That's all part of what it means to react subjectively and, and to assume the burden of calling something a crisis and responding to it in that way. Um, And I would say that um, today um, uh, the the present form of capitalism, you can call it neoliberal, globalizing, financialized capitalism, has brought us to, uh, in a very acute way, to an objective crisis. We have all kinds of uh, um, indicators of that, in, even including uh, a decline of life inspect- expectancy for important segments of the population in the United States. Um, so there's definitely a, a, an objective crisis going on. And it is more and more being registered by people as such. However, that's when the fun begins, if you like, um, because 
everything depends on how people who register a crisis interpret it, where they think its true sources are, who's the culprit, what's to blame, what needs to be changed, et cetera, et cetera. And at any moment, historically, there is more than one such story around. In fact, a crisis, you mentioned a legitimation crisis, what that means um, is that the sort of established narratives through which people interpreted what was going on in, let's say, a normal non-crisis period have lost their credibility. So you could say there's a, a, a breakdown of hegemony of the, of the dominant narratives and uh, meanings that, uh, and schemas that people use to interpret. And when that happens, you get a rush of alternative schemas, narratives, stories that flood into the public sphere. And you get what can be a, a wild competition uh, among them to establish a counter hegemony, another dominant narrative. I think that's exactly what's going on today. The um, flood of new uh, people into Jeremy Corbyn's uh, Labor Party uh, in Britain, the uh, success of Podemos in Spain, and 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 on and on. I mean, uh, we're these are counter attempts to get get in there uh, with a, a an alternative uh, narrative. And we have Ocasio Cortez and Cynthia Nixon's challenge. Right. There's definitely a, a countervailing energy that began. We could have look at antecedents going back to the you know an, the anti WTO protest era to. Occupy and Black Lives Matter, but then through Bernie Sanders and really Definitely. the way Bernie Sanders, that energy reacts to Trump's election and the way the way Trump's election really more totally delegitimates a sort of Clintonian version of of what you call progressive neoliberalism. Yeah, I, I think um, to understand this, we do really have to talk about uh, what I call progressive neoliberalism. And, um, and, and I mean um, the failure, um, which is so apparent today. So there's this kind of there's a veneer of uh, progressive and seemingly egalitarian emancipatory uh, aspirations that got tied up and I do think Bill Clinton is the sort of the key architect of all of this with the so-called New Democrats. Uh, it, it got all tied up with a political economy that created NAFTA, the the WTO, repealed Glass-Steagall. Uh, you know all the ways in which it uh, basically um, invited industry to decamp and uh, finance to uh, metastasize. So. Obviously, that political economy, which we've had, you know, 30-some years of, has really clobbered the U.S. working class. And when I say working class, I mean that in the, the broadest sense. I don't just mean construction workers, factory workers, miners, and drillers. I mean the whole working class, which is includes, obviously, people of color and uh, women and immigrants. Um so the the working and 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 many parts of of what people who would call themselves middle class have been uh, clobbered by this political economy. An important 
segment of them, it, this was Trump's genius, but he didn't invent it, an important segment of them associate that political economy with feminism, multiculturalism, coddling blacks and immigrants. Uh, and it's not crazy because those social movements, or again, as I say, the mainstream conventional segments, were allied uh, with those uh, um, governments and with those uh, corporate forces. Your argument on this point near the end of the book is really interesting. You write that this prior hegemonic political order was this divide between progressive and reactionary neoliberalism. That dynamic, as we've discussed, exploded in part due to these left and right populist challenges from Sanders and Trump. But but since taking office, obviously, Trump has in so many ways doubled down on neoliberalism. His his biggest legislative accomplishment to date is just the most standard Reaganite Republican tax cut imaginable. And your argument is that as a result of that, maybe he has doubled down on his reactionary social politics and xenophobia. And I think I think that's a really compelling argument, especially like seeing his behavior in the lead up to the the midterm. But even more, the analysis of yours, I find even more more interesting and that I I, um, hadn't quite thought of as such before is that ironically, liberal the the sort of liberal neoliberal resistance figures and Trump are in some ways involved in the same quixotic effort, which is to to reinstate this already destroyed hegemonic political order that just divides, which makes either progressive or reactionary neoliberalism the only choices. Yeah, that that's exactly right. I do think um Prior uh, to the sort of Sanders-Trump moment, um, we had a situation in which we had two choices, uh, a reactionary neoliberalism or a progressive neoliberalism. Granted, you could choose between ethno-nationalism and multiculturalism, but you were going to be stuck either way with financialization and deindustrialization. So that was the limited choice. And then we had this astonishing moment when these uh, two figures, and I don't mean to suggest that there wasn't uh, plenty going on before that led up to this and enabled it, uh, and you rightly mentioned um, Occupy and and Black Lives Matter and so on, fair enough. But uh, there's nevertheless, there's this moment where suddenly the political universe widens and there are some other options. And yes, I I did call them a progressive populism uh, on the Sanders side versus a reactionary populism on the Trump side. Now, uh, Trump in power is another story. The the old bait and switch, the economic side of the populism uh, goes, as you say, and um, he doubles down. So I said what he really gives us is hyper-reactionary neoliberalism. And you're right, the the so-called resistance... Uh, at least, uh, is, well, uh, you pointed out uh, already, I mean, there is a, a big battle going on um, between a Clintonite wing and what you could call a Sanders wing um, for, you know, uh, what this resistance is going to look like. Um, and um, I would say that the Clintonite wing, um, it's its aim, I think, is to restore the status quo ante, meaning... Uh, to reinstate progressive neoliberalism. Uh, that, to me, is such a 
a um, devastatingly bad idea. I mean, all that does is recreate the conditions that created Trump and prepares the way for future Trumps, uh, even uh, more uh, uh, horrible Trumps. And believe me, there can be more horrible Trumps than this one. It's a devastatingly bad idea, but it's also a very a very predictable one because in a in a legitimation crisis, it's no surprise that the actors in the discredited order have have no tools but the ones that used to work to 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 resort to. You know, there's a tendency in situations like this for people to feel they need to close ranks and, you know, fight the the fascist menace. Um, well, we should, first of all, talk about whether fascism is even the right word. I doubt that it is. Um, But in any case, um, we're not at a point where uh, closing ranks is the only, um, you know, sane thing to do. I mean, there are moments do come up in history where you have to do that. Uh, This is not one, or at least not yet. And I think it is a moment for a left and progressive populism or democratic socialism, where there are many terms one could use here, to really jump into the breach in a big way and try not to close ranks, but to promote divisions, to try to split off the mass of uh, people who identify with feminism, anti-racism, environmentalism, multiculturalism, split them off from their neoliberal allies, from the Hillary Clintons and others who have, let's say, ventriloquized their demands and claims in a form that is perfectly consistent with neoliberal financialization. Let's try to create a split. Let's be done with lean-in feminism, with corporate feminism. I'm part of an initiative of... um, feminists and socialist feminists who have tried to start something we call the feminism for the 99%. And I'd like to see an environmentalism for the 99% and an anti-racism for the 99% and on and on. Uh, the, the point is um, we, can, we should split the progressive ranks and at the same time try to split Trump's ranks because um, I am convinced that a lot of the the working class people who voted for him, I mean white working class people in the upper Midwest and elsewhere, um, um, are not forever wedded to this xenophobic, anti-immigrant, ethno-national, and racist perspective. Um, the proof is we know that 8.5 million of them voted Obama in 2000, uh, let's see, 2012, and then uh, Trump in 2016. That shows right off the bat that they're not card-carrying racists. They voted Sanders, many of them, uh, in the Democratic primary. They're opportunistic. They're voting for whoever talks a good line on the economy, on jobs, on wages, uh, and, on, and, and public services. And uh, Trump did talk a better line on some of those things than Hillary Clinton did. Um, But we can talk an even better line on those things. And And uh, we can link it to (laughs) the progressive uh, views about gender, race, immigration, and so on. I want to ask you about how alienation 
fits into all of this because it seems like it's a key to getting beyond narrowly economistic analyses and lead us to an analysis that can help us understand things like the Pizzagate conspiracy theory or the really lethal disaffection amongst white workers in terms of the deaths of despair from suicide and opioids, who who in many cases are still much better off than their counterparts of color. You, you write that, quote, markets and labor power change the internal character of what is traded on them and the surrounding form of life in which they are located. What is alienation? Does it take place in multiple ways and on multiple levels, say at both the point of production and also in a larger systemic manner? And what is it that we're alienated from or or made alien to? Right. Um, look, this is a sort of complicated philosophical question as well as a political and interpretive question. Um, I mean, there's a long tradition that goes back to Marx's very early writings to, to write about alienated labor, uh, wa- meaning exploited wage labor within capitalism, where the worker is alienated uh, from her or his own self, his own laboring activity, which he or she doesn't control, is controlled by the capitalists, uh, alienated from the product of the labor, alienated from fellow uh, human beings, and from what Marx famously called the, the worker's species being, our humanity as such, by which I think he meant our freedom to collectively decide what kind of uh, life uh, form of life we want to live and to build uh, the institutions and and so on in order to do that and we're i would say people today are alienated uh from all of those things i mean there's nothing uh more alienated in terms of labor than you know having to sort of uh follow uh some script in interacting with customers, either on the phone or at a fast food joint, while you're also, you know, doing some, uh, uh, I don't know, backbreaking and uh, repetitive uh, uh, labor in in hot and and horrible uh, conditions. So uh, we're we're no strangers to alienated labor, even... um, I mean, I think the popularity of uh, freelancing and and all of this, even though that's quite mystified in in certain ways, it does bespeak a hunger for creativity, being able to determine, you know, how you use your time, uh, being an an individual, uh, not just being under um, the watchful surveillance of, you know, somebody else's script. All of that is important. But I would say the deepest meaning of um, alienation and being unalienated has to do with freedom and democracy, meaning um, capitalism basically steals from us not just our labor and energy, but our ability to decide collectively the most important questions about how we want to live. How hard do we want to work? How many hours? How much leisure do we want to have? What do we want to leave for future generations? How do we want to relate to non-human nature? What should we do with the social surplus that we collectively produce? These are um, the fundamental questions about the shape of our lives. And 
they are decided now essentially by a small handful of people who appropriate the surplus we produce and uh, basically um, use uh, market mechanisms to invest it for the sake of maximal expansion uh, on and on and on and on. In other, wor- in other words, we live in a society where, where uh, Elon Musk gets to decide that yeah. he's firing a car into space for fun, and that's how our social wealth is is being used. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Whereas uh, there might be many, many other things that we would prefer to do with that wealth. Uh, we might even prefer to produce wet, less wealth and to live more simply and companionably and socially and easily, you know, in, in a more relaxed way. I mean, absolutely. So, um, I mean, the, the freedom that people speak about the the in, in liberal democracy that we have is so poor it's so limited it's so paltry and this is even apart from you know uh the uh, compromise of uh, voting uh, registration and money in politics just the way the agenda is defined uh to exclude all the most fundamental questions to let Elon Musk decide them it's such a poor and paltry thing and we could have uh, such a, a, a freer and a more democratic life, but that's not compatible with capitalism. Two other things that I want to discuss with regard to social reproduction. First, the politics of, of immigration. As, as anth- anthropologist Leo Chavez, and I'm sure many others as well, have suggested it's something that's very much enmeshed in questions of social reproduction. On on the one hand, there's the notion that Latinos and Latinas in particular, because of higher birth rates, pose a demographic threat. Representative Steve King, who's this leading nativist Republican from Iowa, infamously tweeted, we can't restore our civilization with somebody else's babies. It, it was obscene, but quite exemplary, I think. And then on the other hand, you also see this in immigration enforcement with the recent policy of family separation. Could you talk a little bit about about nativism as a social reproduction, nativism, xenophobia, racism as a social reproduction crisis? It's such an interesting question. Um, and, and there are so many um, complexities because historically, um, when uh, uh, um, the, the uh, ideas about reproduction have been racialized, what people want to produce is, let's say, a pure white race of uh, people, et cetera, et cetera. But they periodically have always needed people of color to do the grunt work uh, for that. I mean, that's what slavery is all about, for example, uh, to do the grunt work of, uh, of uh, caring for the babies, of cooking the food and, uh, and all of that so-called house uh, slave labor, uh, as well as the food production and, and um, other forms of production. So um, it, it's, I think, another um, example. I mean, you, you actually don't really find people who are consistently segregationist in this sense, 
and who don't still want to free load and free ride off of people of color. Uh, so they are, they're in a certain kind of performative contradiction themselves. And the other really interesting thing, and I, which I think uh, creates a real dilemma for the left, it is above all global corporate capital that wants more immigration. They want workers, it, 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 and it is, has historically, by and large, been organized labor that has been want, wanted more restrictive immigration. That sort of turns, you know, the, what, our hope for ideas about class struggle on their head. Um, there really is, uh, I mean, one would have to distinguish between aspects of the situation in which immigration might really hurt existing workers, and I don't think that's the case much in the United States today, and cases where it's a pure phantasm. With, with no, you know, real objective basis, right? And um, the, the, the problem is that we don't have a global labor regime with global labor rights, global labor protections, global, you know, labor entitlements, uh, so that there is an unevenness in how workers can be treated and paid throughout the world. Capital loves that and, and takes advantage of it. Uh, organized labor rightly objects, uh, but is so weak But objects in the to the individuals States rather than the structure, rather exactly, than the segmented market exactly. in the first place. It, 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 uh, it just hunkers down to, to protect a small and dwindling existing membership against the quote-unquote other. Uh, which is exactly, again, the wrong way to go. Well, Nancy Frazier, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Uh, it's been a really interesting conversation, and I thank you. Nancy Frazier is a professor of philosophy and politics at the New School for Social Research, and, most recently, the author of Capitalism, A Conversation in Critical Theory, co-authored with Rahel Yegi. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that every social process of production is, at the same time, a process of reproduction. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And also, please do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a huge help. 